Morning, everyone. Hey, uh, res kids, you guys are dismissed to go upstairs to your classes. Uh, ushers, you guys can go ahead and come forward. Uh, it's good to see you guys out this August morning. We had a lot of folks on vacation, but a lot of you have made it out to, to church this morning. A uh, quick thank you and welcome to our friends from Red Mountain Baptist Church, uh, Pastor Dave and crew. Give it up for them really quickly. Um, they have done a whole lot of work in the Capitol Theater, and uh, they've laid all the carpet up in the classrooms for us, so uh, it's pretty much ready for us to just come in and finish the job quite easily. So uh, the ball is now in our court, uh, so to speak, about getting ready for our move to the Capitol Theater. We have five weeks, and uh, I don't really say that jokingly. There is actually a lot of work to still be done, so the ball really is in our court, um, and I think that over these next five weeks, we'll give you some opportunities to serve in. Uh, tangible ways over at the new location. Uh, over the next five weeks, we're going to be thinking about how things grow. We'll think about how people are reached through the gospel. We'll think about how the gospel is planted and how churches then are harvested. And then we'll apply that to our reality. We'll think about how God's mission involves every single one of us, not just people who find themselves on a stage every Sunday morning. From the start, let me say this about the next five weeks in this sermon series called Multiply. This series is not exhaustive. It will not cover everything there is to cover about church planting. It will not cover everything there is to cover about disciple making, about evangelism. It will not cover all things that we need to know for our transition even. I will cover, however, that which is most pertinent, that which is most pressing, and that which is perhaps most misunderstood. In the coming weeks, I'm going to advocate for a particular model of church planting that we are going to be using over these next several months and years here at Resurrection. But let me say this from the outset. Any model that I devise, any model that we devise together is a vehicle and not a destination. So again, any model of church planting, any model of church that we may use is a vehicle and not a destination. Our pride can easily get in the way, and we can begin to say, man, we, we're going to try to do this thing on the west side, and, and we're not going to change any of our ideas, we're not going to change any of our strategy, because we're going to prove, daggone it, to the rest of Christendom that our model is the best. We're going to prove that our way of doing church, our way of doing ministry, our way of planting churches is the best way, and so we're going to make this work no matter what. But fundamentally, I want us all to remember that we are not creating something, we're following someone. We're not creating something, we're following someone. The question that helps us develop a biblical church planting model, I think, is this. What is biblically and historically faithful? What is immediately accessible? And what's going to work? What's biblically and historically faithful? What, has, what does the Bible teach? What has the church done for the better part of 2,000 years? What's accessible? What can we actually do with what we have and who we are right now? And what will work, what will see people come to Christ, and what will multiply out into darkness. The model of planting out a spouse over the coming weeks is called a parish model. I believe it fits these criteria. This model that I'll focus on, especially in about two weeks, I think focuses on three themes. One, gospel, two, people, three, place. And you'll see these themes of gospel, people, and place playing out through all of these sermons. You'll see that they are interconnected themes, they are interdependent themes. And we will think about them as such. If you're taking notes and you're going to be here for the next five weeks, note this is where we're going. This week we're going to talk about church planting that is apostolic. Church planting that is in the mode and pattern of the apostles. Next week we'll see that gospel ministry is inherently incarnational. Gospel ministry is inherently incarnational, meaning Christ incarnates himself among us, and we are to incarnate, embody ourselves, or as Eugene Peterson translates it, move into the neighborhood ourselves. Then we'll see that multiplication is in the very fabric of creation, right? In the Great Commission, we're told to go and make disciples of all nations, and they'll multiply all over the world. But when you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we see there was an original Great Commission, right? For all things to multiply across the earth to show the goodness of the Creator before sin got in the way. Multiplication of people and churches is at the very heart of creational order. The following week we'll see the gospel planting is a cooperative church commissioned missionary venture that involves every single one of us, man, woman, boy, and girl. 
And finally, the last week, we'll see that the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers the people of God for the mission of God. That week's sermon will be short because we're going to pray a whole lot for the work God's doing in Resurrection Church and in Risen City Church. Today, we're diving into church planting. Does it appear in the Bible? I think it does, but I don't think it looks like the sort of church planting we see today. I think the apostles planted churches in the way Christ modeled for them, meaning I think the Bible teaches us how to go about planting churches, and I think we see that new churches come from new believers. If you're tempted to say, man, this doesn't involve me at all, I challenge you to tune in. I challenge you to listen and see if you still feel that way by the end of the sermon. The title of today's sermon is Apostolic Church Planting. Look with me in Acts chapter 17, which Farmer just read for us. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on, the three, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. We'll stop there for just a moment. About AD 50, Paul and Silas have left Philippi and traveled westward on one of those famed Roman roads, the Via Ignatia. Their destination was the capital city of Macedonia, Thessalonica, a strategic port city right on the Aegean Sea. Thessalonica was an early cosmopolitan city. It was a center of the worship of false gods. Thessalonica was known as a hotbed of idolatry. It was the sort of place that Andy Griffith would not live. It featured the worship of the emperor and the vast panoply of the Greco-Roman gods. But in the midst of all this pluralism, we know there was a group of Jews who gathered weekly in a synagogue, a house of worship that was far from Jerusalem. And we know, we actually read through Acts as a church over the past year or so, and we know that Paul would come into a town and he would go to a synagogue because in the synagogue he would find a uh, somewhat receptive audience, an audience who was somewhat ready to hear his message. And so Paul comes to this very strategic city where he is um, looking to plant the gospel and looking to start churches, and he comes to that city and he goes first to the synagogue. Paul is a Jew, and we know Paul is uniquely passionate for Jews, though, called, though he feels called to um, Gentiles. And so he goes in, and he's going to begin planting the gospel in this city by preaching the gospel in the synagogue, sort of at the time of the service when some open exposition of the word would happen. Paul would come in, and he would um, exposit the Old Testament scriptures, but he would do so in a way that, that points to the, coming, the Messiah who has come in Christ and then preach the good news of Jesus to the people present. We look in verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. This Jesus I proclaim to you is the Christ, Paul would in essence say. He is the chosen one to bring salvation to this nation and to the nations. I want to notice that Paul is always, always, always focusing on these first things of the gospel. These things we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, I delivered to you that which was delivered to me. These issues of first importance. And these issues of first importance are not circumcision. These issues of first importance are not dietary laws. Are those issues important? Absolutely, and have a, their own wonderful place in redemptive history. But Paul is saying, I deliver to you that which is of most importance, that Christ died in accordance with the scriptures, he has risen again. Paul was not majoring in the minors, but Paul was majoring in the majors. And he is proclaiming the necessity of Christ's death, the necessity of Christ's suffering, and the necessity of his resurrection. If you throw out the resurrection of Christ, Paul will teach also later in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are all, of all people, are to be pitied. That if Christ isn't resurrected, we're still dead in our sin and we've given our lives to a lost cause. This Jesus is the one the scriptures speak. He has come, he has died, and he has risen again. Verse 4. Some of them were persuaded. Did it say all of them were persuaded? 
Did it even really say most of them were persuaded? Not really. So if people don't always respond to your gospel proclamation, remember everyone didn't respond to Paul either. And I'm not Paul and you're not Paul. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Notice they didn't just, they weren't persuaded and thought, yeah, that sounds about right. Now it's not going to affect my life at all, right? That wasn't an option because they understood if these things are true, that these guys are preaching, then I have to be about spreading this message too. So there was this no bifurcated reality of, I'm going to believe this message, but I'm not going to be about spreading this message. He says they believed this message and they joined Paul and Silas on the mission they had, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So early on here in Thessalonica, this diverse city, God is planting the gospel through his servant Paul, and we see people are starting to respond. Not necessarily the greatest people in the world, some very powerful people, but some rabble-rousers. Some of the Roman emperors from the first and second century uh, and third century, they hated Christians because they saw Christians as like the dregs of society. They said, this Christian movement is taking place among the worst of the worst in society. Isn't it funny now we're kind of like the upper middle class of society? And maybe that's where our power has gone away. But nonetheless, he says, the, the gospel has taken root among all of these different people in Thessalonica, and the church is being planted. But anytime the gospel will go forward, there will be pushback, there will be opposition from the spiritual enemy, and here it comes in verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, and wicked men of the rabble, we're talking like Nick Clark kind of guys, you know, we're talking like the worst of the worst, the baddest of the bad. They bring some of these bad, wicked men of the rabble, and they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar, and then they attacked the house of Jason Trotwine. And that's why he's not here with us today. Jason Trotwine's a member of our staff, and he's preaching another church, so that was the joke if you're not a member here. Who was Jason, right? Jason was this early Christian convert. So imagine being Jason, right? You just go to the synagogue one morning, this visiting preacher comes and tells you about the good news of Jesus, you believe the good news of Jesus, you become a Christian, you go home, and then you're like, yeah, this Christian thing is working out pretty well for me. And then all of a sudden, the wicked men of the rabble show up at your house and drag you out of your house because they can't find the guys who converted you and bring you out in the street, and there you are. And then what do they say about them? These men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. They don't realize how prophetic and powerful those words are. That the Apostle Paul and his ragamuffin gang of Jesus followers are, in fact, turning the world upside down. And this Jason guy, he's received them. He's their host. He's an enabler, right? And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Look at the, the, uh, the accusation they're bringing against these disciples. It's the same accusation they brought against Jesus. He's seditious. He's rebellious. He's not listening to the, the ruling authorities of the day. Not true, right? In a sense, it's not true at all. But this is the charge that is brought against them. Verse 7, they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, and they're saying there's a, another king, Jesus. Verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. When they take some money from Jason as a security deposit, they let him go. Don't let this happen again, they say. In a sense, they take his money and they leave. Jason and his associates were now responsible for seeing that there would be no more trouble and the missionaries would not return. And just like that, the apostles are gone. The apostles are gone. How long did this take, right? How long were they in Thessalonica? So we know Thessalonica is a strategic city. Paul comes in. He preaches the gospel. He, some respond, some don't. And then they get run out of town by an angry mob. And then after they get run out of town by an angry mob, they leave. So the question we're wrestling with now is, was a church planted there? The answer is yes. How was a church planted there? We'll see in just a moment. And finally, uh, why did it continue? Why did it work? What did they do? But let's zoom out for a minute and see the process that Paul has undertaken. Quite simple. Find a synagogue. Preach the gospel. Explain the gospel for the sort of in terms that Paul would call these issues of first importance. 
There would be a response to the gospel. Some would be added to the fellowship, some would not. Then they would leave the church in good hands, and then they would exit and do the same thing somewhere else. Now, the Bible is really incredible. The church that's planted in Thessalonica is going to receive a letter from Paul around A.D. 50. In this letter, we know that Paul sent Timothy to encourage the Thessalonian believers, and so Paul is maintaining a relationship with them as they develop and as they grow. When we look over at Thessalonians, we see a lot more information about what happened during those three weeks. If in Acts chapter 17, we get sort of a skeleton, if in Acts 17, we get a, an outline, in Thessalonians, we get a body, we get flesh, we get blood, and we get content. So look with me over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, remember, this is the church that was just planted in Acts Chapter 17, and Paul is writing to them, and sometime earlier, not long earlier, they've had these experiences together. Verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Don't skip over that because that is so important, and that's something we miss if we only take Acts 17 and don't read here in 1 Thessalonians 1. Because if we read Acts 17, we're led to believe that Paul just shows up, he preaches, he goes away, and it's all there. But Paul is saying that's not what happened. We know, brothers, loved by God, he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word. I didn't just show up and preach. I didn't say, hey, there's going to be a, a theology lesson on Thursday night. Come to the theology lesson and maybe some information will lead to transformation and then you'll be a believer. He says, our gospel came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you and for your sake. You know what kind of guy I am, Paul is saying. You have seen the impact the gospel has had on me. You've seen the change that God has wrought in my heart. You can trust this message. You believe this message. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Everyone else in your state, he's saying, is looking at you. Small group of Greeks and women and Jews who might be seen as gullible by their peers. The whole state is looking at you. Everyone in Macedonia and Achaia is looking at you. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He says, you have turned from idols and you've turned to Jesus. Our gospel didn't come to you in word only. It wasn't just a message. All of us, apostle and new believer alike, sense that God was near. You know how we lived among you. Which begs the question, how? How did they live among? The Bible answers that one too in verse 7 of chapter 2. Look with me in chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. But we were gentle among you. We were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. How often do you think of the apostle Paul with the word gentle. The greatest theologian who ever lived, the mouthpiece of God that has lasted ages and will last for ages, showed up and was gentle. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Look at verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. 
almost all Bible commentators agree that Paul's not talking about doing gospel ministry work all night and all day. The text is pretty clear that's not the kind of work he's talking about. He says, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We work this way so that we might not be a burden. Well, why would they be a burden? Well, they would be a burden if they lived there and didn't pay for their food, pay for their expenses while living there. So Paul is saying, we lived among you and we worked night and day so that you guys wouldn't foot the bill for our ministry. We also know through sort of biblical scholars and the, just the plain reading of the text that Paul was a tent maker that Paul had an everyday job, and we don't think about Paul in those terms. And I love to connect with, with the proclamation of the gospel opponents in Acts. The gospel opponents in Acts say, the people who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Well, how did Paul and his crew turn the world upside down? By making tents until 3 a.m. They turned the world upside down by working really hard at quote-unquote secular labor so that they could be a part of a move of God in their day. With the professionalization of the clergy, we have created a scenario where the church believes that you pay me to go and storm the gates of hell while you guys cheer while I run. But in reality, the Apostle Paul and leaders and church members together are called to be about gospel labor wherever we are and whatever we do to make money. Now, Paul is going to be clear that he has certainly accepted gifts. He says, I know how to have a lot and I know how to have nothing. Paul will receive gifts from people from his, uh, for his work, but at this moment, it's advantageous for him to be making some tents while he's doing ministry in Thessalonica. Paul will certainly receive funding from churches, but Paul is also not above working at Starbucks because Paul understood that Christian missionaries don't just share a message, they share their lives. And there was no Starbucks in the first century. Verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. He compares their work to that of a mother early in the text, and later in the text he compares their work to that of a father. Verse 11, you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You see, Acts 18 gives us an outline, and the outline's simple if you're taking notes. Gospel, disciples, church, right? The gospel goes forth, disciples are made, and churches are planted. And I want to just make the case that today that is the exception and not the rule in the West. In the United States, how do we plant churches? We send out a pastor to start a church who hopefully makes disciples, who hopefully share the gospel. Do you see how it's kind of the inverse of the way the Apostle Paul planted churches? Well, why would we do that? Why would we flip it around? Well, because young guys out of seminary need jobs. <laughs> well, because people aren't happy at their current church. They need to go start their own that's bigger, faster, stronger, smarter, better. So what happens is, many times, the norm has been shifted from the gospel going forth, disciples being made and churches being planted, to churches being started, people trying to make disciples, and then trying to get these people to go and spread the gospel. And what I think has happened as a result of that is we have seen church growth amongst a market share of people who are somewhat religious and who are interested in the product that we're selling. I hate the language, but it reflects the reality, so let's just use it. There's a market share of people who are good old Christian American people, and they want to be in a church. They want to be in a bigger, faster, stronger church. So they come from church to church, and man, oh, man, that music is awesome. Oh, man, those facilities are incredible. Oh, man, this is that, this is that, this is that. And they go shopping for the best option they can find. And it works. And if you just build a good church, people will come. You can have a nice little job and just avoid drama, work hard, do the best you can, preach well, and you'll be all right. But here's the problem. The market share of people who are interested in the product is dwindling and dwindling and dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. And they don't care how good our children's program is. They don't care how good our music may be. They don't care how good the preaching is because they are not 
interested. So it's up to us to say, I think if we can recapture the missiology of Paul, I would argue the missiology of Jesus, because the apostles are getting this from the gospel ventures of Jesus early in the gospels, we can recapture that. We'll see a movement. It'll be slow. It won't be particularly attractive because it won't necessarily always be huge. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. But if we can start to send people into towns and into neighborhoods as missionary units, much like Paul and Silas and the people who joined them, and they go into a town and they don't say, here's our awesome church, but what they say is, hey, I'm going to make some tents in this town. Right? I'm going to share the gospel among these people. And I'm going to do more than share the gospel. I'm going to share my life among these people. And they begin to share the gospel of Jesus. It can be through events. I don't care. It can be in a facility. I don't care. These are the things we argue about while we're entirely missing the point. Right? And slowly but surely, people in that community will see that you guys are real. You guys love each other. You guys don't just want more likes on your Instagram post than the other church across town. You guys just don't want a full room because it makes you feel good about yourself. You guys just don't want to be famous in this really silly Christian subculture. But you guys actually love us. You guys actually care for us. And you guys are actually here when it's not easy for you to be here. And slowly but surely, I think that message will take root. And they'll hear of a Jesus who did the same thing. They'll hear of a Jesus who wrapped in flesh, himself in flesh and moved into our neighborhood. They'll hear of a Jesus who lived as a carpenter among his people. They'll hear of a Jesus who died in the place of sinners. They'll hear, hear of a Jesus who rose again. They'll hear of a Jesus who ascended on high. They'll hear of a Jesus who reigns in heaven. They'll hear of a Jesus who will return and make all things right one day. They'll hear that Jesus, and maybe, just maybe, they'll believe the story. They'll believe the message of that Jesus. Paul cared about the Great Commission to make disciples, but he never forgot about the Great Commandment to love God and love his neighbors. Paul went to cities that needed the gospel, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he helped plant churches. But boy, he came and lived, quote, for their benefit, chapter 1, verse 5. Church planting involves life together. Church planting involves modeling the Christian life, and church planting involves long-term commitment. As we wind to a close, worship team, go ahead and um, lead us to the Lord's table, and we'll follow you in, in just a moment. Let's bring this down to our level for a moment and think specifically about how does Risen City Church help move us back towards recapturing this Pauline or apostolic, that word apostolic just means in the pattern of the apostles, the way I am using it, an apostolic, a Pauline model of gospel, disciples, church. Well, if you're going to be a part of the core team of Risen City Church, which we'll meet in this building, and we'll begin gathering interest on September 9th. September 9th isn't the end-all, be-all. It's not this hard launch where all of a sudden, we're church now, you know, come be here. It's where we start reaching people. It's where we start loving the community. If you're a part of the team who's going to be the core team, I want you to know that this is your textbook, man. This is your textbook. I want to send teams out, like Paul and Silas, to go make tents and make a difference all over West Virginia for the good of West Virginians and the glory of God. So who's going to be the first team that we send out? Well, I have heard it asked many times, can anything good come from the West Side? And so I think we have to answer that question, come and see. The team that will compose the missionary unit seeking to plant Risen City Church will be the first of, I believe, many more teams that Resurrection sends out to love their neighbors, serve their neighbors, proclaim the gospel among their neighbors, and begin to see the gospel planted and see churches harvested in communities all over West Virginia. Some of you are going to be on the core team. A few of you, a few different units, a few families, a few people are going to be those who say, I'm going to help take this sort of um, bull by the proverbial horns and, and see God do a work here on the west side, in the west side, for the west side, empowering local leaders to be about their own leadership, but connected with this larger body. We'll talk about those dynamics in a couple weeks when we think about church planting as a cooperative venture.
But most of you and many of you will need to remember that we're still planting Resurrection Church. We're not where we need to be yet. We haven't reached the many people who we can reach. All the people in our lives haven't had an opportunity to respond to the gospel and had the opportunity to join us in this work that God's doing. And if you come to the Capitol Theater over the next few weeks, you'll see there are a whole lot of empty seats in there. There are a whole lot of spaces where people who don't yet know God, the text says they turn from their idols, they can turn from their dead gods and turn to the living God through the testimony of the gospel that we preach among you as we live among you for your benefit and they can then be added to the fellowship. Imagine seeing that room full of people who aren't there because they think our church is bigger, faster, stronger than any other church, but because they were dead in their sin. They met the people of God and now they're alive in Christ. Imagine seeing such a movement. I just believe that we can get started with Risen City Church. I had a meeting about another parish possibly in the coming years. I think we can get started now because I don't think we can outgive God. And I really, really, really don't think that God would give us a thousand people if we're not maximizing our impact with a hundred people. We're not going to have kingdom impact one day when we're bigger, older, more well-educated. We're going to have gospel impact today because the Spirit dwells in us. What if God never intended resurrection is to be this one church in Charleston who does good work? But a movement of churches who embrace their town, share the gospel, make disciples, plant churches, and do this all on mission together. Not majoring in the minors, but majoring in these issues of first importance as defined by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. That Christ has come, Christ has lived, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. We cannot rest until we believe that this state has had a genuine missionary encounter with the living God. In our worship, our community, our mission, we're seeking to recover the essence of the New Testament faith so that the Holy Spirit might bless that faithfulness and use his power, use his wisdom and not ours to propel us, not to be a part of this shrinking market that we can grab all these people, but to set our sights from the five to 10,000 Christians to the 50,000 who aren't yet there in our city. We're seeking to recover the New Testament faith, the New Testament pathways for planting churches so that we may see the glory of God on display among our people in our day. As the family of God expands, we're going to need to make more room at the table because our Father has a bunch of children who he wants to gather with. I was reading a, some historical theology this week. My summer semester's over. I get a whole 10 days off until my fall semester starts in seminary. And he was talking about how for the first couple hundred years of church history, Christian worship without food was unthinkable. And then I thought, you know what? The Baptists, we got things right. <laughs> hey, we're returning to the apostolic faith week in and week out. But I think the historical theologian meant a little more specifically that the people of God would gather around the bread and the wine. We have grape juice this morning. Would gather around the cup. Would gather around the table. And as they would eat and as they would drink, they would proclaim the crucified Christ. So today, in just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're really glad that you're here. But our scriptures teach that the Lord's table is for believers only. Because when you take this meal, you're appropriating it in one sense for yourself. You're saying, I believe that Jesus died in my place. I believe that his body was broken and I believe his blood was shed. So if you're not a Christian, I don't want you to see this as exclusionary just for the sake of being exclusionary. You wouldn't take that because you don't believe that. Right? So if you're not a believer, we ask that you, know, you can walk back there and look at the thing. And if you're paranoid, people are looking at you. You can even like fake make grab or something. But you're in a safe place and you're loved. And no one is looking at you or thinking anything of you. For the rest of us, in just a moment, we're going to approach the Lord's table, partake of the body of Christ broken for us, and the blood of Christ shed for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, this sermon started thinking about... Um, our plans, right? As we multiply, as we as a church move from 
um, this location to the Capitol Theater, which you've so graciously provided in every step of the way, um, have made happen. As we seek to um, plant Risen City Church, Lord, keep us from the idols of the flesh. Keep us from the standards that are so arbitrary but not biblical. Keep us from the desire to impress people with our knowledge or our strategy or our size. Keep us reliant on you. Keep us trusting you. Lord, we land this plane by thinking this isn't just strategy for the people in the room to figure out what to do. But Lord, this is your mission and it involves every one of us. The way we live around people. What kind of people that we are. Lord, I believe we can see a movement of disciples who make disciples when we start focusing not on being better and doing more, but start focusing on abiding in you and allowing your spirit to live and accomplish your mission through us. So Lord, would you lay a foundation this morning for the rest of this series? Would you bless your word? Would your spirit move in power and grace as we set out to do something that in our own power is absolutely impossible? And when it happens, Lord, may we not get credit, but may you. Because you alone deserve praise, you alone deserve glory, and you alone deserve all honor. For from him and through you and to you are all things. In Christ's name we pray.